Hey, what's up, everybody? It's the Gray Zone Live. I'm Max Blumenthal here with award winning Canadian journalist Aaron Matei and uh, kind of random last minute live stream, but I thought we should get it in. I'm going to be uh, in Boston later this week doing a talk on Gaza for, I think, Mass Peace Coalition. So uh, I figured it was good to cover all these fast-moving developments now. Um, today we're going to talk about, well, I was just actually on Capitol Hill and didn't realize I wanted to go ask members of Congress about some Israel-Palestine related questions and, I, and everything was sealed off and I realized Zelensky had just been there. So I missed that. Um, but we're going to cover that. We're going to cover um, as many developments as we can relating to Gaza and the deepening crisis that the Biden administration has created for itself by refusing to exercise any leverage. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about our friend Rifat Alarir who was killed by Israel. Um, play some of his words for you and um, whatever else happens. So Aaron, how's it going? How's it going, Max? How's it going, everybody? Thanks for being here with us. If you're watching live, then uh, remember to like the stream because we can count on being uh, algorithmically suppressed and demonetized. So if you like the stream, if you share it, that will help us reach more people. And yeah, uh, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, well, we everything have... we're doing now is demonetized. Uh, it's The monetization is limited on YouTube, which is just a way of shadow banning us. It's obvious YouTube is being pressured by by the Israel lobby because they had they hadn't been doing that to us before October seventh. And Jeremy Lafredo has a really important piece up. It's like a thirty minute documentary from the West Bank. The West Bank isn't getting enough attention right now, but Israel's carrying out a campaign of expulsions. It's putting settlers in military uniform and arming them, and they're just terrorizing villages across the West Bank. He went to the Jordan Valley to show expulsions there. He went to the Christian village of Taibeh to show how they're being attacked while they're uh, harvesting their olives and everywhere in between. And they're, they're, we, don't, we don't actually use any footage in that that isn't original footage. And the monetization was limited. And there's no explanation given. So yeah, it's bogus. So we appreciate any uh, you know, anything you can do to elevate this stream. And of course, we're streaming on Twitter and Rockfin as well. Twitter X and Rockfin as well. Um, yeah, where to start? I think a good place to start might be the UN vote today. Okay, well, this just happened at the UN. The, the General Assembly voted uh, in favor of a ceasefire in Gaza. Ten countries opposed it, leading the way, of course, is the US, but they were joined by, let's see here. Uh, they were joined by Austria, Chechia, Gu Guatemala, Israel, Li Liberia, Micronesia, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, and Paraguay. Um, so, so that's basically yeah. the typical division. The entire world opposes Israeli aggression. The only country that matters though doesn't, and that's the US, and so the aggression will, will continue. Yeah, and uh, look below Cameroon, which is you know a former French colony, obviously 
the, the Cameroonian population is not pro-Israel, uh, but they abstained. You have Canada actually voting in favor of a ceasefire. That's pretty significant to me. Hmm. Uh, they, they've tapped out. They've had enough. And there are other countries in there. France as well. Uh, one of the biggest U.S. vassal states in the world voted in favor of a ceasefire, Australia. Hmm. So, and the and, of, and the UK abstained. UK abstained. France, yeah, France, France voted, voted in favor of a ceasefire. Favor. Finland yeah. voted in favor of a ceasefire. I mean, the, the isolation of the U.S. is incredible here. Ukraine abstained. <laughs> I'm sure they actually wanted to vote against, but they were probably told to just abstain because. They don't want to make it look too obvious that they're a complete vassal of the U.S. Uh, and it might look awkward for them to be, um, you know, claiming that they're fighting an existential fight against occupation to then be voted for an, to voting on side with an occupying army. So they abstained, which I mean, you sense. would think that would have implications for Crimea if they would vote against this ceasefire resolution. If they they're the more they support Israel, the more they're supporting the pretext for the seizure of land which is considered occupied they consider crimea to be occupied and the u.s uses the same some of the same international legal logic that palestinians assert at the u.n to uh, condemn russia for annexing crimea so it's, it's 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 funny how unprincipled ukraine can be in this case and how they're torn between their sponsor and their claims about international law. But anyway, I mean, this vote really is, it tells the tale of world opinion. It's non-binding. It's not going to go anywhere. The U.S. already cast its notorious veto through, they didn't even send, by the way, their, their U.N. ambassador, the main ambassador, Aaron, Linda, Thomas Greenfield. They sent the, the number two, Robert A. Wood, the guy who sits there when we give our talks at the U.N. and like plays on his phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it was like, yeah, sorry. You have to do this. You have to be remembered in history. No one knew who you were before today, but now everyone around the world is going to see this image of you raising your hand. It's, and they're, they're going to despise you and question your moral rectitude. So the, this is, this is just basically a statement of world opinion. The whole world is against the U S and you know, people in Gaza, they feel like the whole world is against them because no one's actually doing, well, few countries are actually doing anything to stop this. But the U.S. is pretty much, and the Biden administration is preventing anything from changing on the ground. They're even preventing Congress from having, having a say. They just authorized 15,000 tank shells to Israel circumventing congressional approval. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they also admitted that they're not monitoring Israel to see whether it's complying with the laws of war, uh, which, of course, they have to do because if they did monitor Israel, they wouldn't be able to give Israel the weapons because Israel flagrantly violates international law every single second uh, with its bombing campaign of all these civilian targets. In God, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. They're just destroying all aspects of civilian life. Um, yeah. Not just going after hospitals, but also schools. All the universities, I think now in Gaza, all of them have been destroyed. The yep. courthouse, uh, I believe Gaza's oldest mosque was among the most recent targets. I mean, 
anything that can represent Gazan society has just been leveled to the ground. This was filmed by Israeli soldiers yesterday, I believe. It's they're blowing up a UN school that was used to shelter refugees. You can hear the soldiers. So uh, that, yeah, kids used to go to school there. Everyone I know in Gaza went to a UN school. That's how they learned to speak English. And uh, they're blowing up the schools. They've waged a war on hospitals. There are no functioning hospitals in the north of Gaza. This is deliberate. They've attacked every Palestinian institution. Um, I don't have it in front of me. And this will relate to another topic we're going to discuss, but they're um, journalists, family members are getting phone calls threatening to kill them. So they're attacking the media. They are also in control of all the borders around Gaza, including the Egyptian Gaza border. Egypt has no control over that. And what I understand they're doing from a source who's very close to these aid deliveries is they're actually taking anesthetic out of the aid trucks. The few aid trucks that are going in, they're taking anesthetic out. And that's why you're seeing doctors perform operations on children and all sorts of people without any anesthesia. It was an Israeli decision to torture them. What they want to do is eliminate all Palestinian institutions inside the Gaza Strip to turn the population into a helpless mass that will have to go elsewhere to seek help. They're manufacturing a humanitarian crisis, uh, and they're making their their intention is to make. Gaza completely uninhabitable to thin the population in the words of Ron Dermer, special assistant to Benjamin Netanyahu, former ambassador to the U.S., spent most of his life in the U.S., by the way. And uh, he said that they're working on a plan to thin the population of Gaza. None of the aid, by the way, is getting into the north. Nothing is going past uh, Dar al-Bala or to Dar al-Bala. It's all going just to Khan Yunus and uh, Rafa. And so basically, if you're in the north, you're at the mercy of the Israeli military, and people are reporting that they don't eat for three days now. Yeah, I believe the UN figure was that 90% uh, of the people in Gaza are starving. Um, the aid that is coming in is less than half of what it was from before the brief pause that happened last month for seven days. There are all these aid organizations that are warning this is the worst thing they've ever seen, the worst crisis they've ever seen. There was just a, a joint statement from them. And what is Joe Biden doing? Uh, he's not only supporting all this, but continuing to perpetuate the lies that Israel's put forward to sustain it. So Biden just once again said even after he previously had to correct this he once again said that um he saw photographs of beheaded babies here he is uh this was just uh, today as we're recording this uh biden uh i saw some of the photographs tying a mother and her daughter together on a rope and then pouring kerosene on them and then burning them beheading infants doing things that are just inhuman. 
And remember, the last time Biden claimed he saw photographs of beheaded babies, the White House had to admit that that was false, that he, he, he had not, that he was only referring to Israeli claims in public. So here he is forgetting that he already had to retract a previous lie and just doubling down again. And, and the aim is obvious. We talked about it on the last stream. All these let's claims have, of- Let's expand that photo. It's just the same quote. So this is like in the White House transcript. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's legitimizing something that has already been completely discredited and debunked, which is yeah. what all those soldiers believe, which is why they're willing to blow up schools, willing to, they're so eager to wreak havoc and destruction. Yeah. And before that, he says, uh, but most of all, we condemn Hamas's using rape, sexual violence, terrorism, and torture of Israeli women and girls without equivocation, without exception. And the reason why he's now bringing up these alleged uh, rapes is because all the other claims that Israel has made have been debunked, including beheaded infants, which Biden is now still repeating. But And we talked about this on the last stream, the evidence for this, uh, these allegations of rape and sexual violence, it's not there. Uh, it's Anything is possible in terms of could have happened, but the evidence is not there. There's no physical evidence. The only witnesses that exist are two and their tales are ridiculous. Uh, one alleged witness says that she saw a gang rape and then them cut off a woman's breast and play with it. Where's the evidence for that? The other purported witness is a man who says he saw a mass rape of a woman with the face of an angel. And then, then he saw a woman's head being beheaded with a shovel and the head rolled right in front of him. So those are the only two witnesses that Israel claims to have, while meanwhile having no physical evidence, uh, no video evidence, being caught posting fake evidence, and we talked about that with the photo they put forward of a Kurdish woman uh, inside Kurdish areas, I guess of Syria, not even inside Israel, and having forced to delete that, um, and also taking offense when people ask for evidence and refusing to cooperate with the UN commission that wants to investigate this and accusing them of anti-Semitism. Um, so that's the reality. So that's why Biden's saying all this now. But he can't stop himself from even repeating lies that he's already been forced to retract. Yeah, I think he's sort of on autopilot and, you know, someone who's so mentally enfeebled gets all these photographs put in front of them and different briefings. Then he's before basically what he considers to be a ethnic interest constituency that's important to his reelection. He wants to tell them what they want to hear. So uh, breasts and heads are rolling all over the ground and happy Hanukkah, everyone. And oh, by the way, you're all going to die uh, because, uh, it, without Israel, you're not safe. So you could all be killed by Nazis at any day in the U.S. And I can't protect you. The FBI can't protect you. The police can't protect you. No, only Israel can protect you. That's actually what Biden said. Uh, really bizarre presentation. And it's it's sort of like old school retail politics. Yeah, there it is. Were there no Israel, there wouldn't be a Jew in the world that is safe. This is Biden at his... Hanukkah party at the White House. So it's, basically, he's telling American Jews that they're not safe inside his own country. There are probably more American Jews in, there are probably more Jews inside the US than there are inside Israel, right? There's like 6 million Jews inside Israel, about that estimated. They're not all Jewish because a lot of them come from Russia and, and like those aren't actually, <laughs> you know. So, but there's, but, uh, but uh, there's more Jews, I think, inside the US than inside Israel. So he's saying that all the Jews in America are not safe 
uh, unless Israel exists. He, he's not thinking. I'm sure he said it in his this in like his 1972 campaign and like went on his yeah. first APAC visit. And that's just the kind of stuff you used to say that you didn't think about. Israel gives us a voice and Israel makes us safe. It's a sanctuary. If it's such a sanctuary, then why were they so bad at protecting Jews on October 7th? Yeah. Uh, and, and why is it that whenever Israel, you know, the, the Israeli uh, death train gets, get on, gets on the track and starts chugging along, plows over thousands of babies and just starts rampaging, that that's the only time that people that the ADL starts howling about a seven billion dollar increase in anti-Semitism, isn't so? There's kind of a clear correlation between Israel's mass murder shooting sprees, uh, you know, the race riots they conduct throughout the West Bank, their pogromist policy towards the Palestinians, and the ADL claiming that anti-Semitism is raging. So wouldn't that kind of de debunk what Biden is saying, that Israel keeps us safe? It's obvious. The greatest threat to Jewish safety in the United States or Europe or anywhere in the world is the ethno-supremacist state of Israel. Without yeah. Israel, without Zionism, we'd just be a bunch of, as I said last week, we'd be like the Episcopalians, except funnier. And Wyatt Reed pointed this out. Wyatt Reed of the Gray Zone yeah. pointed out that when you, when you read the fine print of the ADL saying there's all these, there's more than 2,000 anti-Semitic incidents, 45% of those alleged anti-Semitic incidents were actually anti-Israel rallies. So if you protest against the genocide in Gaza, you're taking part, by definition, according to the ADL, in an anti-Semitic incident. Yeah. You uh, are an anti-Semite if you're upset. I mean, it's ridiculous. We actually have reached out to the ADL and asked them for the raw data on their anti-Semitism report. We want individual incidents. We want to see what the data shows, and we'll be waiting for that. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I think they'll be waiting. Yeah. Well, um, anti-Semitism is, is everywhere. I mean, I, I just don't feel safe as a UPenn graduate anymore. <laughs> do, do you feel safe Aaron I feel I mean in, in I feel deeply embarrassed um at the behavior of fellow Jews right now uh the absolute self-victimization uh claiming to feel unsafe um here's one new example about here's someone complaining that a dining hall at, at a college isn't calling Israeli salad Israeli salad anymore. Imagine returning to your dining hall to find that salad <laughs> labels were renamed to remove mention of the salads being Israeli. That happened at Yale this week. It's the subtle changes and redactions that are the most pernicious. So I feel like we need to read it in like a different voice, but but yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean these uh, these are the real atrocities taking place. I mean you look at all these anti woke commentators and like yeah pro-Israel come and they get upset about the slightest, most picayune affront that's always related to language. And meanwhile, you can just scroll through any, my Twitter feed and just see genocide unfolding in real time. Just the most horrific agony of humanity that I've ever witnessed within the Gaza Strip. And they don't care. This is what yeah, they care about. They're the most yeah. narcissistic, 
demented people in our society. And by the and way, the I mean, biggest hypocrites. And genocide or not, I mean, I would argue it shouldn't be called Israeli salad to begin with, because what is so much of Israeli cuisine? It's stolen from Palestinians, like everything else they do, including their land. Yeah, Israeli so, salad is like a they call it Jerusalem salad, but it's basically the way that Arabs make yeah. the cucumber, onion, and tomato. Yeah, uh, and they put some like, olive oil and salt on it and whatnot. Like where our ancestors, uh, you know, mine were in Hungary, Max, uh, you know, yours, I, I assume, come from Eastern Sumac. Europe. Okay, yeah. there we go. Were they having Israeli salad? <laughs> in the, My you know. ancestors, yeah. My ancestors in the shtetl were eating Israeli salad and falafel. Yeah. Um, they've been were eating it for hundreds of years. <laughs> I don't know what they ate, like pickled herring or something. Like, exactly. No, exactly. That's, they that's what like, they Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, some food that you can really export. It's a very acquired taste. Uh, but, but, but no, the Israeli couscous actually was a Ben-Gurion in, in, in innovation. He was a, a botanist or an agronomist. And it, the Israeli couscous is larger than traditional North African couscous. Um, he managed to make it with less water. It was like one of the few Israeli innovations. The rest is totally stolen. Like everything yeah. is just from somewhere else. Here's that uh, Columbia Israeli. Uh, here's that Israeli professor at Columbia, Shai oh Davidai, who's constantly complaining about how he feels uh, persecuted on campus uh, because his his school lets students express themselves, including saying chants like "Antifada, Antifada, Long Live the Antifada." He says Columbia has two choices: expel organizations that explicitly call for violence against Jews and Israelis, sh or show the world. It can't, won't enforce its own rules and face legal consequences for unequal enforcement. So basically, th those are those are Columbia's two choices: either expel groups that are chanting "Long live the Antifada," or admit that you just won't enforce your own rules and get sued because you refuse to crack down on free speech. And we should talk about that for a second because I don't know if you watched the hearings, Max, with the president of Harvard and president of Penn, where Elise Stefanik sort of like. Uh, harangued them into uh, committing to crack down on free speech. But the problem is with both these school presidents, the reason they look silly in saying and in, in being able to basically say if calls for genocide violated school policies is because they accepted the stupid premise of the question that basically saying from the river to the sea is a call for genocide. And I don't know whether it was a lack of preparation or just a complete political cowardice where because they couldn't tell Congress member Stefanik, actually, no, someone saying from the river to the sea is not a call for genocide. Because they couldn't say that, then it actually looked like they were sort of indifferent to calls for genocide. And really, all they could have said was, well, actually, people have the right to say whatever political slogans they want. And whatever you think of from the river to the sea, it's not a call for genocide. Because they couldn't do that, they put themselves in a butt in a corner and the president of Penn, after a, a harassment campaign from wealthy donors, had to resign. Yeah, and just quickly, uh, some people are correcting me in the or asserting in the chat that those pearl couscous, pearl couscous is maftul, which is a Palestinian invention. So I was just trying to be charitable. Anyway, yes, uh, the, the 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 display put on in Congress was a mediocre performance by the college presidents, who are just they just are mediocre people 
who don't understand the issue, weren't well briefed. They walked into an ambush by Elise Stefanik, who is a trained, well-honed Israel lobby cadre who had just been at a Zionist organization of America dinner, hanging out with all of the late Sheldon Adelson's acolytes, Morton Klein and company, like the biggest racists and fascists within the elite Zionist world. And she's one of them. And they just thought that they were going to sit there and be treated to like fair questions. They weren't prepared at all. And all they needed to say was such as what, such as what expression of genocide, what are we talking about here? Yeah. And the fact is, if someone ran around UPenn's campus calling for the genocide of Jews, saying gas the Jews or something like that, there would be there there would be a criminal investigation or something. They would be definitely detained to see if they were dangerous neo-Nazis. Like nobody does that. Um, the other thing is all of these allegations that are designed to define traditional speech associated with Palestinian protest with criminal behavior and neo-Nazism, they're bound up with other false intrapersonal allegations that we heard when the House GOP hosted a bunch of students who were actually themselves Israel lobbyists. None of them were just students claiming that professors had said things like gas the Jews and I hope the Jews die and things like that. And they never produced any evidence because they're lying. They're just completely making it up. So the no calls to genocide have taken place. It was hypothetical. And UPenn's president, Liz McGill, is gone because of a hypothetical debate. Well, that's not really why she's gone. She's gone because we, because this is how power works in the US. If you're president of UPenn, president of the United States, you're answering to pro-Israel billionaires. And if they threaten to pull $200 million off campus, which is what happened at Penn, then you're going to get the ax and you're going to deliver a hostage video where you first apologize and you're going to be publicly humiliated and then you're going to resign. And if you don't resign, they're just going to keep antagonizing you forever. If, if you give them one inch, they will take a mile. That's the way. And that's the, these are the same forces that Biden has subjected himself to. In, so, in some ways, I think Bernie Sanders is subject to these forces. He used to, uh, he, he meets with APAC's local chapter in Vermont all the time. So this is how power works in America. And, and so what does this mean for democracy? What does it mean for free speech? It means just look at the, look at all the forces that oppose free speech. And we talk about them all the time here. And a lot of people on the right agree with us when we talk about the censorship industrial complex, NewsGuard, the right's all upset about NewsGuard, this online anti-alternative media censorship machine funded by the State Department. We were talking about them before they were. Though They don't have as much power as the Israel lobby does to not only censor, but to actually redefine language and speech as criminal behavior, and then to change policies within institutions in order to prevent people from being able to say that. So the Israel lobby is, I think, the greatest threat to free speech in the United States. And it doesn't even represent something within our country. It's not even like something, I mean, it is something within our country, but it represents a foreign apartheid state 5,000 miles away that's currently carrying out a genocide. 
So and who and who's the yeah. only member of Congress who's really called this out forcefully? Thomas Massey, who's a Republican. Uh, Ilhan Omar did once, but she got so viciously attacked after she, after she said it's all about the Benjamins, baby. Yeah, that she's I think retreated a little, little bit on calling that up. So Thomas Massey, a Republican, recently called this out: the role of APAC in Congress, and um, I believe also he's he's called out the attacks on on free speech, although. Maybe I could be mistaken, but there's no one willing to really call this out. And that's a great point. Uh, they're so much more effective in silencing political speech than anybody else. And, and the, 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 how do I want to say it? You know, we talk about all the kinds of McCarthyite campaigns on our streams, like Russiagate, for example. And, you know, you you've been attacked as a spreader of misinformation on Syria for doing critical reporting on Syria regime change operations. We try to explain if we try to explain that to you know the average liberal here in Washington D.C. or New York City, they might not know what the hell we're talking about. But when it comes to Palestine, it just seems like all across the world, people increasingly get it. Okay, maybe some older white evangelicals in the red states won't get it. And yeah, you don't expect, um, you know, certain elements within like uh, J Jewish American, the Jewish American establishment isn't on our side, but the, within the democratic party, at least most people are just cringing with in disgust at what's happening in Gaza. And yet there is no ability for them to express themselves the same way there is within the Republican party where people are actually able to find a voice within Congress to voice their disgust on their money going to the Ukraine proxy war. There's no channel anywhere. And so the frustration is so extreme. It's us butting up against a political class that's controlled by a genocidal billionaire class, whether you're on campus or in Congress, and I don't, and, and, and there's no remedy to it right now. Yeah. Well, here's someone who might, who would take issue with that. Here is reliable left puncher, Matt Duss, the former advisor to Bernie Sanders, the guy who uh, early on in the Ukraine proxy war after Russia invaded, he wrote an article declaring that nobody should engage with the gray zone. For some reason, engaging with the gray zone uh, bears on the outcome of the Ukraine war and on policy there. He really went out of his way to declare us non grata. I think so it here did. He is, yeah. So here he is stepping in to scold Norman Finkelstein for, uh, Finkelstein said that the Jewish billionaire class has declared war on our nation's <laughs> universities. Either you support Israel's genocidal war or we will destroy you. So Matt Dust, the former Bernie advisor, now he's a Beltway think tanker, steps in and says, we can and must have a conversation about the very real dangers to academic freedom without anti-Semitic Jewish billionaire class nonsense, which both endangers Jews and undermines the struggle for Palestinian liberation. So criticizing wealthy Jewish donors who are pressuring these schools to censor somehow endangers Jews and also undermines the struggle for Palestinian liberation. And it's so funny. I mean, there's so many ironies of him saying this, but he's scolding a son of Holocaust survivors so it's just funny that he has he's lecturing about endangering Jews. And then also the struggle for Palestinian liberation. I don't know how long Matt Dust has been involved in the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Imagining it's not as long as Norman Fickelstein's like four decades. And Dust, I if I remember correctly. Has he and, struggled? And, yeah, well, of course not. 
but like struggling but, is like oh, I'm doing something. Like Matt does, yeah. I don't see associate him with struggle. Yeah, yeah, no. Like he's on Zoom. He he's on Zoom all day, uh, taking part in meetings, and he's writing. I remember, you know, when your book Goliath came out, not that long ago. Like what year did that come out? Two thousand thirteen, thousand twelve. Yeah, 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 yeah. He wrote a he wrote a he wrote a, a review trashing you. So that was his contribution to the struggle, at least back then, is trashing critics of Israel. And people who support Palestinian liberation. And here he, he defended again. Netanyahu against me. He defended <laughs> Netanyahu's dignity, and uh, he he said like I'm the I'm the one extreme, and on the other extreme are the neocons. But yes, yeah, yeah. And right in the middle is his boss Bernie, who continues to oppose a ceasefire. And my response to Matt is, I mean, aside from the fact that you're a Gentile who wants to like suck up to people that Norman could care less about. When are you going to call for a ceasefire? I mean, who are you to lecture anyone when you're still, isn't he against a ceasefire? He is because Bernie is, uh, and I'm sure maybe, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at least if he's still involved in crafting Bernie's uh, policy, but I mean, Bernie's incoherent. He, he claims he supported the UN resolution that the US vetoed, which called for a ceasefire. Okay. But then he comes out and says he opposes a permanent ceasefire because you can't have a ceasefire with Hamas. So he's basically saying that like Israel's regime change goals in Gaza are legitimate. So therefore, he's, he he claims to both support uh, a ceasefire now, but also endorse Israel's goals, which is to destroy Hamas, which Israel's doing by destroying the Gaza Strip. So I don't know exactly what he favors, but it's it's incoherent. And that's why AIPAC sends out a tweet thanking Bernie for his opposition to a permanent ceasefire. So AIPAC certainly thinks that they have an ally in Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's a huge, it, this is the moral test. And uh, they've failed. It doesn't matter what you say. It ma if you're in Congress, it matters what you do. Thomas Massey is doing things that actually count as a Republican libertarian who might have a totally different philosophy than most people out there protesting for Palestine, who might not even know he exists. He might not even be coming at it from the same, and his motives might be totally different, but he's doing something. What is Bernie doing? It's all hot air. And then what he actually does at the end of the day is further the genocide. And that's why APAC is saying, thank you, Senator Sanders, for your strong opposition to a permanent ceasefire with Hamas. And I mean, think about the logic of, of Bernie. He was for safety. a pause. He was for a pause. And, and I am so for a pause. And then after the pause, we're going to kill more babies. It has to happen yeah. because the Hamas is a threat. We need first we need a pause to let those babies have a few more days on this earth, and then I mean, I'm going to put on my mittens and watch Netanyahu kill babies. Bernie's argument is so incoherent and stupid. He's saying that you can't have a ceasefire with Hamas because Hamas has called for the annihilation of Israel and has vowed to continue carrying out October seventh. And the basis for that is one statement by one Hamas leader which said that, yeah, Israel should be annihilated and will continue to carry out October 7th. But what this Hamas leader was saying was basically, we're gonna continue resisting because we're occupied. And Bernie, because he can't recognize the fundamental problem here is occupation. There's no obligation on Israel. It's all about, it's only about how Israel conducts objectives that he presumes to be legitimate. So because he won't accept the fact the problem is the occupation and that that's what has to end first, that's the first thing that has to happen, then it's all about what tactics should be pursued uh, uh, along the goal of destroying Hamas, ra rather than how can we end the occupation now? And um, the, like the logic of saying like you can't have a ceasefire with Hamas because they endorse 
because one leader endorsed destroying Israel. Look at the statements that Israel, Israel leaders constantly make about destroying Gaza and Palestinians, wipe them off the map. And not only their statements, but their actions every single day of massacring people. So you can't have a peace with Hamas because of one person's statements and the actions on one day, October 7th, but you can have peace with Israel, which has killed far more people and was attacked to begin with on October 7th because they're the occupying power. If they weren't occupying, they wouldn't have been attacked, but he can't process that logic in his head. So therefore he comes up with these incoherent statements and gets applause from APAC. Yeah. I mean, not to belabor the point too much, but Hamas states, they, they, they officially state that they seek a extended hudna with Israel. A hudna is like a truce that lasts for a long period, but is not permanent because what their alternative is, is the Oslo Accords and the peace process where you keep negotiating while laying down your arms and, and coordinating security with your oppressor and essentially allowing yourself to turn into what the West Bank is today, where Palestinians are defenseless. Gaza, prior to October 7th, had no Israeli soldiers. You could travel up and down this tiny little strip of land and there were no settlers and people, as people are fighting back, they're fighting back today. And that's what, I mean, that's sort of what every resistance movement fighting colonialism has done traditionally. So they're willing to negotiate a 20-year hudna on the basis of negotiating more towards an end of occupation. Um, but what Bernie wants, which is the same thing that Biden wants, and he's taking instructions and directions from the White House, is for Palestinians to lay down and accept occupation forever because they believe in Zionism. I mean, that's and that's really what this comes down to. Uh, we're kind of in a situation now where you have to decide, are you for occupation or not? Uh, there's no there's no middle ground here. And uh, I don't think there's going to be a ceasefire until we see some kind of decisive indication of where history will go for Israel and Palestine. Bernie's on the wrong side of history. Matt Duss is lecturing people. There's all the, there are all these annoying little screeds coming out now about what the left should say, whatever <laughs> the left is. Like, I don't know. It's like some gatekeepers for the radical wing of the Democratic Party that... But, you know, there was like this, what was her name? Megan Day from Jacobin started scolding people about questioning the official narrative of October 7th and questioning Israel's uh, rape propaganda. And I said to her, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, a lot of people were going in on her and saying, oh, you're a phony or whatever. I just have one thing to say to you. Why, why couldn't you convince Bernie to be for a ceasefire? You're lecturing people. You, your book is called, you know, beyond bernie your whole life was about bernie jack you're the jacobin editor jacobin linked it's hitched its star to bernie and what did bernie give them back what, what did they get from this relationship i mean power concedes nothing without a demand and they they haven't even demanded that he do it so yeah whatever. i mean there, there are activists who've been pressuring bernie i mean code pink has been at his office pressuring him but yeah he uh, he should face uh even more criticism and pushback because he's supposed to represent the progressive movement and the progressive standard bearer can't even bring himself to call for a ceasefire it's it's such a joke it's such a joke i mean he did vote against uh, like i 
I want to be fair to him. He did vote against that measure to give Israel another whatever fifteen billion dollars. Um, although at the same time, he urged his colleagues to support the sixty billion dollars for the Ukraine proxy war. But he did vote against the Israel. He did vote against it on the grounds that he opposed the Israel funding. So credit to him for that. That's something. But uh, of course, a progressive who calls himself progressive should at minimum be calling for a ceasefire, and he can't even bring himself to do that. Yeah, it just seems like there's no space within, uh, you know, established politics for anything like we're seeing on Ukraine, where the Republicans are, you know, the House Freedom Caucus is pushing back. There's there's nothing like that with Israel-Palestine. And, I, you know, in previous streams, I'd said, you know, vote for a melon. Do something to register your disgust with the bipartisan Biden-led consensus on genocide. And people are furious. But um, Jill Stein has jumped into the race. She's a show, She's shown up at a lot of Palestine solidarity rallies, including rallies where activists are trying to shut down arms companies shipping weapons to Israel. And, you know, that might be a good protest vote. She's going to be on the ballot in a lot more states. She's on the green. The, I think the Green Party has ballot access in 36 states. Um, she will be on a lot more states than Cornell West, who sort of faded and seems to have faded away completely. I haven't heard from him in weeks. But find a protest vote. Do something to register your discontent. Don't let them say uh, that uh, you know Biden lost because of you know. Don't don't let them. Don't let the pundits, the day after Biden loses, ignore your outrage. That's what I want to say. Um, and I don't see any hope within electoral politics for actually pushing for a ceasefire after watching Biden's performance last night at his Hanukkah. Um, what was it? Hanukkah Israel lobby perversion of Judaism festival of darkness. Um, I think that we're the, the, the way this is going to shape up it, what we're going to see the, the, the preponderance of forces that will actually alter the situation in favor of Palestinians will come from the region and they will be using force because all diplomatic channels have been cut off to Palestinians by the Biden administration. And that's, that's a tragedy. Uh, but here's the reality. This is Israeli media, Ynet, Yediot Aronot, one of the main tabloids in Israel. More than 2,000 new Israeli army soldiers have been disabled since the beginning of the war. That's a machine translation. We've not been through anything like this. Every day the rehab wing takes in about 60 new wounded soldiers and the tsunami of trauma is still ahead of us. Now in the outside chance that we're still monetized on this stream, I'm not going to show you footage by the Al-Qassam brigades, the armed wing of Hamas and Sayyar al-Quds, the armed wing of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which comes out every day showing them taking out Israeli tanks and taking out Israeli soldiers. I had been skeptical about the ability of these homemade Yassin 105 rocket-propelled grenades to actually damage Merkava tanks because of the Merkava's trophy system, the reactive armor. And the fact that the, I mean, these, these shells cost like $100 to $500. Tank costs like $16 million, maybe more. But they are, they're doing damage 
soldiers are dying. Uh, Israel's only reported 105 so far. Um, and it doesn't appear that they have been able to establish deterrence on the ground. The fighting is raging across the Gaza Strip. Israel may have won the war on Palestinian hospitals. They may be triumphing over Palestinian babies and families in Gaza, although they too are resisting in their own ways. But they are not, they, I don't know what kind of military success they're able to demonstrate after two months where rockets are still hitting Tel Aviv from the Gaza Strip. I mean, something like three nuclear bombs have been dropped on the Gaza Strip if you measure the total sum of explosives that Israel's dropped on Gaza. And the armed factions are still able to not only launch missiles at Tel Aviv, but to hit the various Israeli communities in the so-called Gaza envelope in southern Israel. Yeah, and now there's a report in the Wall Street Journal, and I, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but this is what is being claimed, is that Israel started flooding the tunnels with seawater. Um, and if that's true, that strikes me as a pretty desperate measure because to do that, you would inevitably be endangering the hostages that are also being held in those tunnels. So, yeah. and but the problem with these stories is you never know what's true or false. So I don't want to give it too much credence, but if it is true, and that's a big if, that to me is a sign of desperation by Israel. Yeah. Um, that is something we heard from freed abductees. Uh, let me see if I can pull that up. Yeah. So freed abductees who were actually in uh, Gaza and have been released into Israel had been went to the war cabinet of Netanyahu and his um, many of his opposition, former security chiefs who have now formed a war cabinet, kind of an emergency cabinet. And they testified and said, if you were going to flood the tunnels with seawater, you're going to kill all of our relatives and the people we left behind. Um, they said that the worst fe fear we faced in Gaza was Israeli shelling, uh, Israeli bombing. You terrorized us and we mm -hmm. saw you kill lots of people and we were afraid that you would kill us and that you would blame it on Hamas. And here's a, a released Israeli captive who actually complains that they were shot at by a helicopter on their way into Gaza, being taken into Gaza, confirming that Israeli Apache helicopters killed many people around the Nova Electronic Music Festival in what one uh, Israeli officer referred to as a mass Hannibal, a mass attempted killing of captives. We were sitting in the tunnels and we were terribly afraid that not Hamas, but Israel would kill us. And then they would say, Hamas killed you. Um, so what is their strategy for getting the captives released? I don't know. They tried a commando operation to get an Israeli soldier out they discovered his location and two soldiers israeli soldiers i believe were killed in that operation communications gear was taken and the soldier himself was killed so they totally failed um and they don't want to negotiate what is the strategy here what is the political objective beyond ethnic cleansing and genocide i don't see one um then the u.s just keeps shipping more weapons but they Israel keeps losing more tanks and more soldiers in a very closed, in a very close knit society, a small society that can't handle casualties the same way that other societies can. Why? Because as a settler colonial society, so many people have 
have European style lives. They want to go back to their Netflix and chill with their girlfriends. They uh, have two dual citizenship. They can just go to Germany if the beef starts to cook, as it were. People in Gaza can't go anywhere. They have to stand and fight. Israel's borders have shrunk since October 7th. For the first time since 1973, Israel's borders have shrunk. There's no one in the south. It's a closed military zone. The north is cleared out because of Hezbollah. How will they answer that? What is their strategy? These are the questions that haven't been answered. And then there's the other issue of Hamas. They say the Biden administration's policy, which is Bernie's policy, Aaron, which is the Israeli policy, is that there will not be a ceasefire until Hamas is gone. But Hamas doesn't want to necessarily come back and govern. Why would they have want, they, one of their biggest mistakes may have been actually governing the Gaza Strip. What they may want is for Israel to have to control it directly in order to lift the mask on occupation, which will just continue to discredit Israel in the eyes of the world. Imagine if Israel had to govern the Palestinian, the, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and there was no Palestinian authority. The crisis for Israel would just grow by the day. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we're at. I mean, Hamas has always been um, ambivalent or hesitant about ruling Gaza. I mean, if you go back to when they were elected in the 2006 Palestinian elections, is that when it was? Uh, if yeah. you, there's a book by Tarak, uh, sorry. There's a book by Tarek Bakoni called Hamas Contained. And he points yeah. out that they initially Hamas didn't take part. They didn't want to take part in the elections. They made a relatively last minute decision to participate. To their surprise, they won. And they won, I believe, more in the West Bank even than they did in Gaza. And uh, and so, yeah, they eventually did take power. But it was, and ultimately, they also were sort of compelled to act preemptively because they got wind of a U.S.-backed coup plot against them. So that's how they actually came to power in Gaza preemptively because they were trying to undermine a U.S.-backed coup plot. So they've always been uh, they're conflicted about the role of ruling Gaza for obvious reasons, because if you're ruling over a Palestinian territory under occupation, then you are, whether you like it or not, being sort of a, subcon a subcontractor of the occupation. And Israel thought before October 7th that they had lulled and pat successfully pacified Hamas into performing that. Of course, October 7th dispelled that myth. But yeah, I think that's a fair thing to think about is that Hamas might not want to rule Gaza anymore anyway. Which would mean that victory is elusive for the Israelis. It's, it's, it's unattainable. That's actually the thesis of a piece by Daniel Levy, who's a, actually a former uh, peace process negotiator. And Tony Karen, who's a former Time Magazine editor in the nation. Um, I think it's a pretty insightful read. They assert that they're that israel cannot win hmm. uh because the, its political objectives are unattainable uh and and just to just think who the, who could they possibly bring in to rule a gaza strip that's been decimated with an angry uh, population that's been totally betrayed uh if if israel achieves its military goals who would want to rule that well, I think of uh, Muhammad Dahlan, right? Dahlan uh, has already said yeah. no way. He really? Okay. All right. Well, uh, maybe he would change his mind, but I, he'd he'd be no, it wouldn't work out too well. And he, you know, for those who don't know, he's basically uh, running a big mercenary firm for the United Arab Emirates, and he would be 
It would be like the Emiratis coming in to rule Gaza. That's like the U.S. fantasy. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, if he even if even he's saying no, uh, because he was happy to be a collaborator before, if I understand his trajectory correctly. If he if even he's saying no, then I think, yeah, Israel's not going to have too many candidates. Yeah. So uh, I mean, that's something we'll keep following. But the more I see this war shaping up, the more I think. Um, Israel cannot obtain it, achieve its political objectives. And uh, they are heading towards a kind of um, Pyrrhic. If they achieve vic any victory, will be Pyrrhic for them. Um, and of course, they've invited unprecedented bitterness and hatred from people around the world. Um, I mean, they've taken the symbol of our faith community and they're turning it into a swastika uh everything yep. associated with israel is toxic now 100 100 percent. um and uh, i mean i i know you got to go soon we should try to pack in two quick segments but i i i don't want to let this one pass without um mentioning rifat alarir who's a palestinian poet, author. I had the real privilege of meeting him in uh, 2014, right before the first time I went to the Gaza Strip. Um, it was, he was on tour for his book, Gaza Writes Back, uh, which is a compilation. And we got to hang out in Berkeley, California and got to know one another. And uh, well, I'll Here's one of his last interviews. I want to play a few of his interviews before I talk a little about him uh, and his, the circumstances of his killing. Um, but he asked CNN uh, apparently to play an interview he gave to them if he died. And this is it. And I don't have any volume for some reason. Is there a reason there's no volume? Uh, I can try it. Let's see here. Yeah. Well, that didn't work. Um, okay. Well, me... well, um, we thought I, 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 I want, I wrote, Rifat as, uh, I saw the situation in Shujaia where he was staying deteriorate, uh, the tanks had moved in. There was fighting everywhere. Uh, his tweets were growing more and more despairing. And I and we had actually, you know, been having some exchanges. Um, it was amazing how he was able to keep up with everything on Twitter while this was all <laughs> taking place around him. Um, and I never heard back. And then I guess I learned from you, Aaron, that he had been killed in what appears to be a targeted strike by Israeli military. He had left a UN school after getting a threatening phone call. One of those threatening phone calls we keep hearing about that journalists, their families are getting. Uh, Rifat was a professor of English, an academic at Islamic University. In 2014, uh, his wing of the school had been blown up. 
his students' writings had been burned in the missile strike. Uh, he had family killed. Then, and they threatened him. He took shelter in his sister's apartment, and he and six members of his family were killed in this apparently targeted strike. Um, here's an interview I think we can play. And it's one of his last interviews. It's with Electronic Intifada, and it's it's very uh, uh, powerful what he says. We know that it's very bleak. It's very dark. Uh -huh. There's no way out. Uh, if if there's no water, there is no uh, way out of Gaza. What what should we do? Like drown? Like commit mass suicide? Is this what Israel wants? And we're not going to do that. And I was telling some somebody, some friend the other day that I am an academic. I probably the toughest thing I have at, at home is an expo marker. But if the Israelis invade, if the target has charged at us, open door to door to massacre us, I'm going to use that marker, throw it at the Israeli soldiers, even if that is the last thing that I would be able to do. And this is the feeling of everybody. We are helpless. We have nothing to lose. Uh, we know that it's very bleak, it's very dark. Uh, there's no way out. Uh, if, if there's no water, there is no uh, way out. And here is, uh, here is the clip of him. Um, this is what he asked to share on CNN. Um, if he passed, if he was killed. And, and so they, they just published this. We count the years by how many uh, wars our, our kids uh, survive. Weeks before Palestinian professor Rafat Alaria was killed by a strike in Gaza, he gave what would be his last interview with CNN. He gave CNN permission to release the audio of his interview. He did not live through the war. My father, my parents, and my brothers and sisters all had to evacuate. But there's this thing about us moving and, you know, scattering the family members across yeah, different yeah. places. It's an archetypal Palestinian debate on should we stay in one room? Mm. So if we die, we die together. Or should we stay in separate rooms? So at least somebody can live, can survive. Alaria, a father of six, was killed on December 7th in Shuja'aya, Gaza. In his final interviews, he spoke about what it means to be a parent during conflict. The, the, the toughest thing, the parents, feeling of helplessness and despair, your inability to provide the protection, the safety, even the love and the hugs. You want to hug your kids like you usually do, but you don't want to do it because you don't want to feel or make them feel that this is like a farewell hug. Yeah, that was, uh, well, those were, those were some of Rifat's words and interviews he was able to conduct. He'd been giving interviews for years to Western networks, and they would continue to provide the propaganda fodder for Israel to wage wars on him and his family, ultimately leading to his death. I mean, in many ways, he was a casualty of the media. And we need, you know, we should talk about a little bit quickly about who he is. I mean, this is someone who's 
extraordinarily talented poet in English. His poems have captured people's hearts and minds across the world who are experiencing the agony and anguish of witnessing this genocide in Gaza like no other poet or author has in the English language, writing and thinking in a second language. He was a collector of books who saw thousands of books burn in his home when Israel destroyed it. He's someone who said that he had anti-Semitic views before he was able to travel to the United States and meet anti-Zionist Jews and actually brought anti-Zionist Jews to his class in Islamic University to meet Jews for the first time who were not wearing Israeli uniforms or piloting a drone that was going to kill them. He was someone who taught Hebrew literature in his class alongside Malcolm X. And for him, he said his Malcolm X moment was meeting anti-Zionist Jews in the US, uh, that realizing they're not all bad, this is about Zionism, mm -hmm. and imparting the tools of resistance to his students and telling them how Israel wants us to be extreme, it wants us to be fanatical, we have to resist in an intelligent way, but to resist all the way to the end, all the way to the end. He said if they were going to raid his house and kill him, he'd throw a marker at them. He would throw the one thing he had in his house, which was an Expo marker. And that's what we can all do. We can all throw the marker. We can all pick up his marker and throw the marker. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to carry that marker. And if they come at me, I'll throw it too. Everyone can do that. Throw the marker. The last poem that he shared before he was murdered uh, was called, I, If I Must Die. And he shared this on November 1st. And uh, the actor Brian Cox of Succession fame just read it for the Palestine Festival of Literature. So let's listen to that for a moment. If I Must Die by Rifat Alaria, November the 1st, 2023. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings. Make it white with a long tail so that a child somewhere in Gaza while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, sees the kite my kite you made flying up above and thinks for a moment an angel is there bringing back love if i must die let it bring hope let it be a tale so you mentioned earlier the impact he's having and that's just one i mean imagine I mean, he wrote that. that under relentless assault yeah I, I, I've spent a few nights under the bombing and it discombobulated me so much that I couldn't really think straight. Um, and he wrote it in, not in his native language, but it really captures his own uh, character and spirit perfectly. Yeah. Um, I, also, I also want to recognize some of Rifat's uh, Twitter poetry. Um, because he was a fellow uh, keyboard warrior 
<laughs> uh, and I really, this is one of my favorites. <laughs> F Medi Hassan, just going at all the frauds who are trying to, uh, you know, virtue signal about how they, they also condemn Hamas and the, Palestinian resistance is also evil and we're, we, we need to recognize both sides in the beginning. You know, he kept it clear and straight. He, he, he this, this is about whether he gets to be a free person in the world or not. He doesn't have the luxury of, uh, you know, virtue signaling and look what happened to Mehdi anyway. Yeah, he also was hilarious. He was so funny. And he, you could, it was on display even while he was under the worst conditions. And it was a, just an illustration <laughs> of his. Of I his, want this framed. It, it was an illustration of his, of his will to survive, that he just kept a sense of humor throughout. And um, you see, oh yeah, that was back when Naomi Klein wrote that article attacking leftists yeah. for celebrating October 7th just as israel was beginning its extermination campaign and that that was rafat's response um he uh he was hilarious he was brave and he impacted the lives of so many people and he did it by choice you know as you were saying like um ali abonimas pointed this out he could have moved abroad and taken a prestigious position at some university somewhere because he was so brilliant in his field of literature, but he didn't. He chose deliberately to stay in Gaza, to be with his friends, to be with his family, to be with his community, because he believed in Palestine. He wanted to be there for Palestine and he was willing to die for it. And uh, for that, I mean, should we talk about some of the most uh, heinous attacks that he faced from US pundits? Yeah, well, I think this we need to talk about the circumstances of his death, because when you look at you know his Twitter activity, I mean, he was, doing exactly what we do. And it turns out he lives under a totalitarian military dictatorship that can turn off your life with a flick of a switch. Unlike us, uh, you know, I, I don't really see myself getting assassinated by my government for things I tweet. I think my government doesn't even notice that they exist. <laughs> yeah. It may be that Rifat was killed because Israel, the so-called Jewish state, couldn't take a joke. And a very prominent U.S. pundit may have inspired his death by distorting his words deliberately in a bad faith attack. So let's just like look at that really quickly. I wrote a like a uh, kind of an analysis of how that went down. But uh, here's Rifat uh, last month in November. I don't remember the precise day. And he wrote, if I get killed by Israeli bombs or my family is harmed, I blame Barry Weiss and her likes. Many maniacal Israeli soldiers already bombing Gaza take these lies and smears seriously and they act upon them. And he's getting threats from active duty soldiers who are threatening to uh, torture his family and kill him and do worse, uh, which really shows what they're about. And here's the Barry Weiss tweet. This is part of a thread she did on how her former employer at the New York Times, where she quit because they were too woke, uh, how uh, they, you know, they were allowing all kinds of anti-Semitism in their publication. And so she writes, here is Rifat Alarir joking about whether or not an Israeli baby burned alive in an oven was cooked, quote, with or without baby powder. This is obviously a joke. 
it was gallows humor, but it wasn't about a baby being baked in an oven because no baby was baked in an oven by Hamas. It didn't yeah. happen. It was made up at a Republican pro-Israel fundraiser by one of these, you know, fake uh, rescue organization guys, Ellie Beer. He just completely lied in order to get money from Sheldon Adelson's estate. So she's smearing him, distorting his words based on a lie that she herself believes, which led to those threats that we saw. And, and that, was part of a, that was part of a long thread that she wrote about him specifically. And her aim in that thread was to get the New York Times to stop publishing him because they publish an op-ed uh, an op-ed by him talking about what it's like to live in Gaza under Israeli attack. And she was so triggered by that, so outraged that she wrote this long thread smearing him and bringing up that tweet and not getting that he was joking, mocking the atrocity propaganda that is used to commit atrocities against him and his people. Because as has now been acknowledged, that story of the baby in the oven was a lie. Uh, even Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, admitted that. Yeah. So as you say, if that if Barry Weiss played any role in getting him killed, and if that joke tweet of his played a role in him getting in his getting murdered, I should say, not killed, murdered, um, then that means that Israel and Israel killed him over a joke. Yep. And 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 you know, we could never know how our tweets could be used or what kind of whether they could inspire something that we wouldn't support uh you know who who could take them out of context and say uh this you know inspired me to commit a mass shooting not that i see myself not that i see that happening but she hasn't even acknowledged this incident or his death or even responded to any of it she's just pretending like the whole thing didn't happen she hasn't like issued a single statement so she could at least say this was a you know unfortunate tragic death she's not doing that yeah um, She's continuing. She's just, you know, she got protested at her new uh, anti woke diploma mill that she started at the university, the University of Texas, Austin. It's like a grifter, like grifter university. And she was protested and she still didn't acknowledge it. I and mean, there's a massive protest. So it kind of shows you the, the, the sense of inviability and the detachment of this pundit class from the reality on the ground that the reality that they are helping to fuel and, and the same with, you know, CNN, I mean, he gave an interview to CNN. It was a very touching piece, but CNN from the beginning has been the most influential network in driving the Israeli fabrications that have um, fueled this genocide about beheaded babies, babies baked in ovens, uh, mass rape and so on. They're not going to take any responsibility. No. So again, I mean, our responsibility is to throw the marker at them. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to do know, for the rest of my life. You know, uh, Anthony Blinken was just on CNN and he gave Jake Tapper a pat on the back uh, after Jake Tapper, you know, brought up <laughs> yeah, the fact I remember that, that CNN has led the way in covering these uh, rape allegations uh, against Hamas. And of course, you know, it's been shown that CNN sources are all israeli government tied and make dubious claims that don't add up there's a long piece in mondo weiss about that but let's just watch this clip of anthony blinken patting jake tapper on the head 
these atrocities. I, I can't think of these atrocities. Um, well, let me just put it this way. I've heard anti-Semitism hypothesized as a reason why the UN and the international community might be uh, so slow to acknowledge this. What do you think? Jake, first, I, I really applaud the extraordinary work of CNN on, in, in bringing this to light and bringing this to the world. Uh, you performed a remarkable service in doing that. As to your yes, uh, they've pr performed a remarkable service of spreading atrocity propaganda that can be used to commit actual atrocities. That's well, it shows that he, you know the State Department fed it to them. Jake Jake Tapper is a huge stenographer for the State Department, and it really yeah. suggests that they have been feeding this to them, and encouraging them, saying this is helping us in our negotiations. Yeah. Uh, Basically, wh why would that help the State Department? Well, Blinken's a Democratic Party operative. He's a guy who's done a lot of partisan hackery through his life, not just a diplomat. He's not really a diplomat. And the Biden administration is struggling with its own base. So, you know, let's gin up a Me Too scandal with Hamas to get our base back on board to understand why Israel needs to do this. That's what I think was going on there. And Jake Tapper's been their guy, along with Dana Bash. Um, I don't know if I can imagine any, you know, Muslim American anchor or Arab American anchor being able to be as overtly ethno supremacist as they are. Uh, but, but I, you know, I think this is a media assassination and we're seeing so many journalists in Gaza and so many intellectuals and so many, uh, doctors. I was talking to, uh, I was talking to, um, Dr. Mads Gilbert the other day, who performs emergency surgeries in Shifa Hospital throughout 2014. He's a Norwegian doctor, surgeon. He told me so many of the talented medical students he worked with have been killed. Uh, he, he's, he's losing count. Um, so many professors and academics are being killed. They're being targeted. Yeah, yeah. There was one surgeon who was shot on his way to work the other day. People being bombed in their homes. It's totally deliberate what is happening. They want to make not just um, Gaza's population flee, but they just want to make life there impossible for anyone who who stays afterwards. They're just trying to destroy the society. It's so it's so obvious, and that's why I I don't know what else to call it but genocide. Um, you know, One of the reasons it like hits home so hard with Rifat, besides the fact that like I knew him, yeah is that he understands this on a granular level the way we do. Like he understands it from the same angle. He understands the forces that are arrayed against Gaza and he understands it in a sardonic way. His last tweet that I, I think it was his last tweet was blaming Biden for this whole thing. I mean, he understands the way U.S. politics work and the way the U.S. media works. He understood how Barry Weiss was inciting his murder. There it is. The Democratic Party and Biden are responsible for the Gaza genocide perpetrated by Israel. And that was, was that his last tweet? That was his last tweet, yeah. Well, there you have it. I don't have anything more to say. I mean, that's, that's what, you know, if I'm gonna, that's the sign I'm gonna carry outside the Democratic Convention, unless I can somehow get a, has to go inside they don't seem to be giving them out to me but uh there you have it 
he, I mean, he understood. Um, anything else to add? Just that he had six children who are now without their father. And uh, you listened to that clip and he was talking about how hard it is to, you know, handle the destruction of Gaza and, and what to tell your kids. And he, he talked about in that clip, uh, you don't, you know, you're hesitant sometimes to hug them because you don't want them to think this is your farewell hug. I mean, imagine the dilemma that he went through. Imagine the pain he went through along with every other parent inside Gaza. It's just, it's beyond comprehension. But his six children survive him along with his late wife. Um, and his legacy will carry on in them and in everyone who's lucky enough to know him and now lucky enough to know of his work and be inspired by him. He was a, he was a remarkable figure. I only spoke to him once, but um, for, you know, I was just, I, I couldn't believe the courage he had. I just couldn't believe it. Well, it really uh, does affect you differently. I, I speaking for myself, it affects you differently when you're a parent uh, having, you know, witnessed successive assaults on Gaza uh, and uh, you know, when you're a father, when you see a, uh, people, men, uh, not able to shelter their children, having that responsibility stripped from them by a tyr tyrannical power, uh, it affects you differently because uh, you don't know what it's like until you have a kid to feel that responsibility. Um, and that's something that he went through. Something I know all parents in Gaza go through under bombing is where should the children sleep and they often tell them to sleep in different corners of different rooms so that some might survive if the bomb only detonates one part of the home. Um, he is, Rifat al as far as I know, is still under the rubble along with his family. It can't be reached because it's in the north of Gaza. And this is another point. He chose to stay in the north and to stand his ground because Israel wanted them to leave. This was an act of resistance to stand your ground and to stay where you are because it wanted to ethnically cleanse the North. And he chose to do it with his marker. And uh, no rescuers can reach there because the Israeli military is surrounding this area, carrying out massacres, execution style massacres in the UN schools, blowing up the UN schools, stripping and detaining men, putting on fake displays of them as uh, painting them as Hamas militants to portray a false image of victory to its population. So we don't know the full facts of what took place. But he's there. He's still there waiting to be retrieved waiting for a proper burial. And the least we can do is, uh, is, is remember this remember in November. Remember in November, don't let them trick you with other things and forget about this. Remember his last tweet in November. That's all I have to say. I know we wanted to um, cover Zelensky's visit, but I think uh, we'll have to do that next time. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Please like the stream and share it. And um, yeah, that's all I got. All right. Well, peace everybody. Thanks for being with us. Um, if you're in Boston, Check me out there. I'll be somewhere in Boston. I'm sure you'll find it online. I think it's the Boston Community Church. And that's um, when? That's on Thursday? That's on Thursday at 7 p.m. Okay. Um, I don't know if 
Eric Thomas, Eric T. Red is in the in the stream, but he's going to be there. Savvy Savs is going to be there, um, and we'll be posting video, and I'll be talking about all this. And uh, then we'll be back. So see you then. Peace. Peace, everybody.